0: Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, in reaction to the uprisings in Minneapolis and across the nation, to help us understand and to talk about what we can do, we speak first with Fox Hampton with Black Lives Matter Seattle King County. And then with John Miller, with the Department of Human Resources with King County, who's also a co-founder of a Black African affinity group for King County employees. Then, as part of our coverage of the congressional race in the 10th CD, we speak with former Tacoma mayor and former Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce CEO, Marilyn Strickland. That is all ahead, so stay with us. In the wake of the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, we are horrified and we are looking now, many of us, for ways to process uh, and especially respond to what is happening. So I've invited on Fox Hampton. They are the keeper of records for Black Lives Matter, Seattle, King County. And Fox, you have joined us on short notice and I very much uh, appreciate you doing that. Welcome.
1: Thank you, I appreciate being here.
0: I recognize that this is a very fluid situation right now, but I would like to ask you to start by, and I will just note that we are recording on Friday the 29th uh, in the afternoon. I'll just start by asking you your thoughts about the events of last week and especially of the last 48 hours.
1: Yeah. um, Well... I'm speaking for, you know, the board in general when I say we're sad and we're angry and we're frustrated and that we want black people to stop being killed in the streets. You know, we're hurting. We could barely grieve one one passing and then just it felt like never ending, just um overwhelmed by death. And we're mourning for everyone who has been lost to white supremacist violence, you know, whether it be from vigilantes or police or, you know, medical neglect. Our hearts are with those people in Minneapolis and New York and Columbus who are protesting and rioting and in the streets, and you know, we hope for their safety not just in these moments in the streets, but long after because we know that Ferguson protesters have died under mysterious circumstances, and so we're just hoping that they can be safe as we all navigate these really trying times.
0: As I mentioned, it is, it's an ongoing situation, and I think that's absolutely right. And I'll ask you here in Seattle and in King County, what is Black Lives Matter Seattle King County planning in response to, to all of these events?
1: Yeah, um, right now we have no actions that are currently happening under our name. We are, however, in the beginning phases of organizing a memorial car car caravan that would honor the people we've lost in 2020 and uplift mutual aid efforts. Right now, we're really focusing on what the organizers in um, Minneapolis and other places are saying. And right now, they've called for donations. Um, so we've donated to several frontline efforts in Minneapolis and Columbus, including bail supports and um, other mutual aid organizations that are doing that frontline work. And, you know, we understand people's anger. And if Seattle goes up in flames, we'll be here to bail folks out and to continue to keep ki- continue to navigate this situation as it arises.
0: I would love if you could to have a word right now for the listeners to this program. You may be aware that Indivisible is a group that strives very hard to be the strongest ally possible. What in your mind are some of the things that we as a group here in the state can be doing to support right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what folks can do is folks can be in solidarity with Minneapolis, Columbus, um, and New York and anywhere else people are rioting. And what that means is listening, uplifting and sharing resources. People in those areas know what they need most and how to go about getting those things. If you're on social media, find trusted resources that are engaging in mutual efforts, follow them, share, donate, White and other non Black people everywhere, and especially here in Washington, should be focusing on material resource reallocation, AKA run your pockets, which um, includes um, two reputable sources. And not to burst anyone's bubble, but Sean King is not a trusted source. Do not go, do not donate to Sean King. Um, there's not enough time to go into it all, it's very easily Googleable. Googleable, and there have been many black women that have spoke up about why Sean King cannot be trusted and how he profits off of black death in moments like these. So I encourage everyone to look outside of Sean King and to look for um, local efforts that are happening in your neighborhood. There are plenty. There are plenty that have sprung up. So I would really encourage people to look to their neighbors and to focus on community care.
0: Do you have any specific resources? And further to that, do you have any uh, reading, any learning, any authors that you would recommend that people uh, look to right now?
1: Um, right now there is a group based in Seattle. It's called COVID-19 Mutual Aid. They have expanded to South and East King County, um, but they are really leading all of the mutual aid efforts in those areas and, um, can connect people outside of it. Um, it's very grassroots. It sprung up as a need base of, you know, local community organizers seeing that their communities needed things and springing to that action. Um, so I would definitely recommend people, um, check out COVID 19, um, Seattle COVID 19 Mutual Aid uh, is their Facebook page and their Instagram page. um, And they can also look towards, they have a collection of other resources. I would also recommend Uprooted and Rising, which is a Black and Indigenous and people of color focused uh, food sovereignty group. And they are also um, on the ground doing a lot of uh, mutual aid efforts Um, right now in Seattle, but they are planning to move to other rural areas. As for readings, I would definitely recommend um, Settlers. Um, I think it's a good step because it talks about white people, um, especially the white working class, and how they are um, complicit in anti-black violence while also fighting against the capitalist system.
0: Settlers is a book by an author named Jay Sakai, and I will have that in the show notes for people You mentioned COVID-19, and we know that the black population in this country is being disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit.
1: Yeah. um, Black people, along with indigenous and other people of color, make up the majority of essential workers. And essential workers are more at risk for contracting COVID-19. Therefore, infection rates in our communities will likely be higher than most. On top of systematic racism, um, contributing to decades of medical neglect. Lack of resources, healthcare, childcare, and non-livable wages make it hard for essential workers and community of colors to thrive in this time. All of these factors contribute to us struggling right now and being more susceptible and also being neglected when we do contract it and go to the hospital.
0: You know, and listeners to this program will know that I, whenever possible, I try to end on an up note, and that may simply not be appropriate or possible right now because it just feels like we never make any progress on this front as a country, that we uh, keep taking several steps back for every step that we take forward, and and that nothing ultimately changes. I will just ask you personally, how do you feel that change will ultimately be made in this country?
1: You know, I think this idea of having measurable progress and change is really rooted in capitalist thought idea of like, i.e. productivity. You know, we aren't fighting for progress or accolades or to feel successful. We're not fighting to be assimilated into a burning house. We're fighting for our lives. We're fighting for every Black life. And that that's only going to come when Black people are not murdered in the street, when we can walk down the street, when we can jog down the street, when we can be asleep in our apartments or in public spaces, when we can just be and exist and not have our lives snatched away or threatened to be snatched away. And that, you know, looks like the abolishing of the United States and all colonial empires.
0: That is is something that I I suspect is going to resonate with a, a certain number of my listeners. Um, I I want to invite you to come back uh, anytime and to continue this conversation. Um, And I I genuinely hope that you will. Fox Hampton, thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to join us. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Glad that we could be here to uplift um, voices. And, you know, again, thanks for having us.
0: Joining us next is John Miller. He is an Organizational Development Practitioner with the Department of Human Resources with King County. He is a father of four boys, and he is a co-founder of a Black African Affinity Group for King County employees. John Miller, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's short notice, and I really appreciate you taking time out.
2: Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate you for, for having me, So,
0: This is a time right now where I think people are just feeling horrified. Frankly, uh, people are, are feeling rage um, people are, are feeling powerless uh, in, in terms of what they can do to respond to what is happening uh, at the national level. And I'll just ask you personally, how do you feel we should be responding right now?
2: Um, all of the, the feelings that are out there are legitimate. I myself have have gone just today through R.A.G.E. and um, cycled back into the space of love and and hope. Um, With the R.A.G.E., I I, I would hope that our communities see ways to actually transform our existing systems um, to create um, different outcomes, right, so that we're not showing up and um, and we're not having the same old experiences repeated time after time with with gaps in between right that uh, we can we move towards this opportunity of new norms um and realizing that we are stronger together right that like truly disrupting and transforming the system as we know as racism is going to take all of us like, as a collective to do our parts in uh, being successful and creating um, this new transformed uh, system of love.
0: I'm going to ask you a really blunt question because it's something that I know a lot of listeners to this show are pondering, and that is how can white people be the strongest allies we can be right now? How can we be more present? How can we listen better?
2: Uh, that's a key. Right. Um, in my coaching um, world, we talk about level three listening um, that gets into the space of listening with your whole body. Right. And so we move beyond our head into our hearts and we start looking at where are the connections? Know, um, you as a white person, you won't ever have the experiences of a black person. But you do have times where you've had negative discomfort, maybe even traumatized experiences, right? And you know how that has impacted you. Leveraging those experiences and connecting to those of us on the Black and African side um, in um, building that connection, right? And, and inspiring you to continue uh, wherever you are on your journey, uh, whether that is you're just not coming into the space where you're realizing that there's something that you can or should be doing. Learning more, educate, get your hands on whatever materials out there. Find community with other whites that are wanting to champion, and then you know you have other PO, uh, blacks and uh, Native Americans and people of color, right? That that are um, in this space, um, and 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 listen, there are going to be some of us that are when you come knock on the door where we're like, we're tired of teaching. We're tired of engaging. We're tired of holding your hand. And we're we're just looking for you to kind of show up and disrupt and transform these systems that are being perpetuated um, through um, this false notion of white supremacy, right? Um, And in addition to sort of the learning journey, um, and being a great partner, a co-conspirator, be willing to assume risk uh, for the sake of justice, for the sake of love. Um, don't stand in the space of um, quietness, or muted or um, or by uh, uh, by the side. Act.
0: And what does that specifically look like? I, ideally, what does that look like for you?
2: Um, when I think about... Sort of these things when I, simply is like leveraging privilege to create privilege. Um and another way to say that is say like if you are let's say you're a white person and you hold some sort of positional authority um and you have influence over a policy, right? When you go into your policy, think about some of the disparities and inequities that are built in it, systemic inequities and disparities that compound and perpetuate these outcomes. And champion for changing and changing the language, right? Um, Another way that it shows up is that if you're on the PTA with a black family and you're noticing that the uh, suspension rates of your blacks, um, black students are disproportionate. Be that voice that speaks up and says, this is unacceptable. What are we doing here? What can we do differently? Don't accept less than transformation, right?
0: Well, on the topic of transformation, it seems to me, and I think it feels this way to a lot of people, like we take some steps forward as a nation, and then we take sprints backwards. And I wonder how you personally see us moving forward as a nation through this time.
2: Through repair, through getting into this space of Ah oh, healing. Um, and it starts with processing that rage and that anger, right, and getting into and and finding. was one of the things that I say, I'm kind of bouncing my all around here because there's a lot of passion mm. um, and emotions associated with you know where I'm at today. But i my challenge, my personal challenge, and I think this is a challenge for everyone, is that when we're in pain, right? When we are in rage, right, there is an opportunity. There is something to be gained in that loss. But sometimes we're so overwhelmed with the negative experience and the feelings that exist that we lose out on the opportunity of seeing the gain. Even in this chaos, even in this traumatic, negative, oppressive, right, death, loss of life, right? There's opportunities for us to come together opportunity for us to stand together for justice, opportunities for us to learn more about one another. I can't say it enough, it is rooted in love and it seems so simple in theory, Um, but when it comes to real practice, when it gets into that space of unconditional love, now we're, we're accepting one another for who we are. We're not expecting us to show up and be the same, think the same. It's acknowledging and embracing and loving our differences, valuing our differences, hearing and seeing our differences and celebrating them.
0: It feels to me right now like love is an act of courage. And I'll say that because I think the tendency is, is to really be angry and, and even given to hate. And so just simply to love feels it feels brave.
2: Yeah, and it's difficult. Hate is the easy response, but what what benefits come out of hate, right? What life is manifested out of hate, right? The, the counterbalance to hate is love, right? And if we ever want to get beyond the rage, get beyond the, the death, the loss, the suffrage, right? The oppression, we've got to go to the other end of the spectrum. And so many of us have just find discomfort in just using that word, let alone really understanding what it means, what it looks like, what are the behaviors associated with love. So you're right. It, it takes a significant amount of courage to even just admit that you have limitations around love and, and to use it um, and understand it and live into it on a daily basis.
0: John, you seem to be somebody who has hope when hope is in short supply right now? I'll just ask you straight up, where does your hope come from?
2: Oh, being a father of four, right? I've got four four young Black men that are coming up in this world. Um, if I don't have hope in a better future for them, mm. why am I here? Why do I even allow them to kind of continue? in this world, if I know that, if I just am I willing to accept that these, these way things are going to be forever, I have to have hope. It drives me um, to do all the work that I do. I have come to this place Stephen, where I have accepted that the work that I'm doing, just like the, my ancestors that came before me and the sacrifices they made, right? It's not for me, right? It's for those that will be coming behind me.
0: John Miller, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time for for sharing your thoughts and just for, for being available for this, man.
2: I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my voice. Um, it's It means a lot. Thank you.
0: My guest, Mayor Marilyn Strickland, served as mayor of Tacoma from 2010 to 2017 and was recently the Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce CEO. She was one of the first candidates to declare her candidacy for Congress in the 10th Congressional District. That is a district that is centered on Olympia and includes portions of Thurston, Pierce, and Mason counties. Mayor Strickland, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I'll just begin by asking you how the campaign has been going. I can imagine it's a very challenging time to be running for office.
3: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting time for all of us, you know, dealing with COVID-19 and know what we've done is we've taken our campaign digital and so instead of going out in the community and participating in forums in person or holding events and shaking hands meeting people knocking on doors we are using you know digital media extensively and so that's everything from doing Facebook live events to holding virtual events to um, you know just using texting but really thinking about technology in a different way because at the end of the day we still have to reach voters the best way we can and so right now it's a digital platform and lots of time on the telephone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. The telephone and the internet are definitely getting a a serious workout uh, these days for a lot of people. So out of the Democratic field of candidates running for this seat, you are the only one with executive experience as mayor of Tacoma. How do you envision the shift to a legislative position in Congress?
3: Well, you know, I think what's interesting. So, you know, with the Tacoma City Council, we elect the mayor, but I'm actually part of the legislative body. And so even though it was a group of nine, you know, we still have to go through the process of vetting policy and standing committees. We get a lot of input from the public. We hold um, public forums for things that are on an agenda. And I tell folks that when you serve in local government and you are part of a weekly city council meeting, you have a town hall every week. And so it's really, you know, it's, I mean, it, it's on a smaller scale, but you still have to go through the process of, you know, looking at what community needs are, drafting legislation, vetting it through a committee. And then even sometimes, you know, making amendments and amending it as you go along. And so I'd say, yes, it it will be a shift. But I point out that right now in Congress, there are 41 people who are former mayors. And so it's not unusual for someone to go from the role of mayor into the United States Congress.
0: Well, I will ask you, then what sort of legislator do you see yourself as? And specifically in that, how do you envision yourself being effective for the 10th congressional district?
3: No that's a really good question and so you know when we think about why people want to go to congress you know if you ask five different members of congress they you know they will they will give you a variety of reasons but this is about meeting the needs of the 10th congressional district and if you look at the geography and the demographics of the 10th district you know i will tell you that it probably is diverse in every possible sense of the word it contains urban communities rural communities suburban communities you know joint base lewis mccord which is the second largest employer in the state of washington is firmly planted in the tent we have military civilian veterans students we have universities we have you know native american tribes we have you know just a variety of a lot of different people with different needs and so as you think about what kind of congressperson you're going to be you know i want to be someone who delivers for the district now with that said you know in a body of 435 people that's easier said than done than just running in there and getting what you want and even with some conversations i've had with members of our delegation you know they've told me you know on average it may take four to five years to get a bill passed yeah. with that said we are now in an emergency And so, you know, the work that's happening right now to provide various COVID-19 relief packages really says that there's an urgency. And so, you know, there is a there's an incident and there's a way to get things done if we need to. So what kind of congressperson will I be? I will be very conscientious. I will think about the district first, but also understanding that, you know, you have to have alliances and partnerships. When I served as mayor of Tacoma, I had the opportunity to develop, you know, really good relationships with our congressional delegation. So I have that foundation to begin with. And then I know some folks that I met through being mayor and just some folks who've reached out to me. And so, you know, you can't just arrive there with no relationships and no base to start from. And so I think that, you know, getting there, having a base of knowledge and knowing people who are part of our delegation will really give me a strong start
0: you mentioned the COVID recovery and i would love to get your thoughts on that as mayor of tacoma you were you served during the great recession and you guided the city through the recovery so i'd love to get your thoughts on the pandemic and economic recovery that lay ahead of us are there specific things that you learned during the great recession that you would bring to the pandemic recovery
3: yeah, you know, and I will say that, you know, they were two very different types of crises. And so the recession that took place back in 2008, 2009, you know, we know that was a housing crisis because there were just risks being taken on Wall Street with people's mortgages and right. the economy crash. But, you know, we didn't shut down the economy. So people were still going to work. You know, workers were still showing up, customers were still showing up, even though, you know, unemployment was higher and people were losing their homes and, you know, small businesses were suffering. So, What we have in front of COVID is something that was sudden, it's severe, and we literally shut down the economy because we wanted to put public safety first, and that was the right thing to do. I mean, I think that was the right thing to do. And so looking at both of the different crises, I will tell you a couple things have to happen. With the COVID-19 crisis... We have to get relief to workers and to small businesses as soon as possible. And you've read the stories. You know, there are complications with people getting unemployment. There's some fraudulent activity happening right now where people are making claims, you know, with identity theft and doing things they shouldn't be doing. That's
0: here in the state with unemployment benefits. Yeah, exactly
3: right and and then also too you know you're hearing stories about some of these large publicly traded companies getting relief and then local small businesses are still trying to find out what you know what relief they're going to get and even on top of that there are the disparities we know minority owned businesses are not getting help at the same as other businesses and so it's been you know it's i will say this i think people are doing the best they can with what they have as quickly as they can. but it's complicated because the system was not built to Take on anything of this magnitude and of this volume. Um, with that said, I think that you know what's happening right now is you know people are per- we're getting relief from Congress and it's an iterative process. And so as I think about you know what I would be doing in Congress right now, it's like okay, we just released another relief package, and then you come home and you talk to people and you say okay, you know h- how are you doing? Are you getting your unemployment? If you're a small business owner, you know are you getting what you need? If you're not, what are some of the obstacles? Are the obstacles something that I can resolve at the federal level? Are the obstacles that are happening at the local level? What do you need? And I would say that one thing that I think is really important that sometimes gets missed in this conversation is that the COVID-19 crisis and shutting down the economy is having a dramatic effect on government revenues. And so, you know, we hear the stories about how I think the state of Washington is going to be, what, seven or eight billion dollars in the hole. Now, cities around the entire, you know, CD and around the state are talking about these giant gaps in their budgets. And we sometimes forget, especially a local government, you know, they provide basic essential services. It's police officers, firefighters, sanitation, you know, all those things that we rely on that we sometimes take for granted unless an emergency pops up. And so... One thing that I would do for sure is that, you know, I would convene local officials, you know, get the mayors in the district together, get the county exec and say, how's the relief going? What do you need from us? Can we send money directly to you? You know, what's the best way to provide you relief? Because I think that sometimes the needs of local government get forgotten in this conversation because those are essential services that need to be met on top of the needs that individuals and families have.
0: Well, and that's certainly your area of expertise. Uh, You have laid out a five point plan for rebuilding the South Sound, which, of course, uh, encompasses your district. Can you run those down quickly for us?
3: Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, clearly, if we're going to recover the economy, there will be more than five points. But I would say that these are five things where we know we really need to lean in. And I would say, first and foremost, follow the science with a focus on public health and worker safety. And this is why it's important, you know, the people on the front lines who are providing assistance to folks who are sick and need help, they have to have the equipment they need. We have to have testing so that they feel safe. And we have to make sure that public health is the big priority. And to be honest with you, We're not going to have an economic recovery if we don't focus on the public health and the worker safety part of it and using science and data and facts to make the conversation. And I would say the other thing, too, is that, you know, a lot of people have been affected by COVID. And because this is a crisis and a pandemic, we need to find ways for insurance companies to cover the costs that are associated with COVID, because I think this is really important because people should not, especially now, feel reluctant about going to get the help they need. But again, the testing has been haphazard, you know, getting protective equipment for frontline workers, whether it's people who work at grocery stores or hospital workers or even firefighters or longshoremen, it's been a challenge. Um, Number two, I would say provide the basics, right? And, you know, we are hearing stories every day about food banks that are just overrun. We have the National Guard coming into food banks to help with food distribution. And people are very generous in this community. They're donating their time, their money, and that's important. But, again, it's about getting your basic needs met. And, you know, it's increasing SNAP benefits. It's increasing access to unemployment. And this is also an opportunity, I believe, to do some things that we know we probably should have done pre-COVID and paid family leave should be a national policy. And that's one thing I will fight for when I get to Congress.
0: Can I just ask you about that step? So when you talk about things like SNAP benefits, unemployment benefits, do you see this just as a matter of securing those benefits at the federal level?
3: Yeah, I I see it as a matter of finding out what the needs are here at home on the ground, because every week that passes, it'll be a different scenario and making sure that we are providing relief packages that are sufficient enough to meet the needs of people. And, you know, I know that unemployment goes through the employment security department and there's a lot going on there right now. But just ensuring that we have sufficient resources for here for the people who on the ground who need it. And one example I use is that if you look at the hospitality industry and those are people who work in restaurants, hotels, you know, even convention centers, you know, those are businesses that rely on us showing up. And if we don't feel safe showing up, they're not going to have customers. If there are no customers, the businesses can't get going again and they can't hire folks. And so while people are in a holding pattern, let's get them the unemployment benefits they need and to make sure their best basic needs are met. You know, unemployment benefits, food, safety, those those things. I'd say the other part that's important, too, is that, you know, small businesses. You know, one of the things that we've learned in COVID is that even when the economy is good, a lot of small businesses struggle just to keep going. And this is really magnified, in my opinion, the appreciation that we have for small businesses, but how they're such an essential part of our economy. And in the 10th district, for example, you know, small businesses actually employ the most workers. I had to have my staff fact check that because I presumed it was government mm. and it's small businesses right because of of
0: olympia you would assume that that would be the yeah well because
3: of Olympia, because of jblm because of you know universities because of all the state government and so that was you know I, i had to fact check myself on that but making sure that you know they're able to get the ppes they need for their workers and also too you know what are they doing to get these ppp loans to ensure that they can stay afloat and provide relief to their workers if it's possible um, I'd say the fourth thing that I think is interesting is that, you know, as we talk about the crisis and the equipment we don't have, right, the testing, the PPEs, even the respirators that people need in hospitals, we've heard stories about having to import them from other parts of the world, importing them from other parts of, of you know, the, the country. We should consider manufacturing those right here in the South Sound. And I say this because the South Puget Sound, you know, whether it's Tacoma, Lakewood, Olympia, Tumwater, Shelton, Puyallup, you know, pick a community. We have manufacturing capacity to do that right here. So let's think about this as a way to manufacture this incredible life-saving equipment that we need, putting people back to work and family wage jobs, and thinking about this as another way to help restart the economy, because I think it's incredibly important to use the assets that you have. Yeah. We have ports, we have rail, we have talent. And, you know, we could manufacture these and send them across the country. So I think it's just an idea that I've been kicking around, but I'd love to talk with economic development folks at Thurston County and Pierce County and Mason County to see if this is something that we could make a permanent plan, you know, post-COVID to make ourselves a manufacturing center for medical equipment. And, And then finally, you know, the Trump administration. They dismantled the pandemic office. They didn't take this seriously. They defunded the Centers for Disease Control. They didn't think about investing in research. And that's one of the main reasons that the response has been sluggish. And think about this. You know, you heard the president say, well, the states are on their own. They need to figure it out. You need a national response. Look at the way South Korea took a national approach to responding to this. It was quick. They mobilized. They had a plan. They got it done. And, you know, one thing that we really need at the federal level is a national public health system with the capacity and the funding to respond to pandemics and disease like this, because this will not be the last time that we experience something like this. And so let's get that thing in place. Let's hold the administration accountable
0: for it. Absolutely agreed. I would love to get your thoughts on the Democratic response to this in the House. Uh, We've we've talked a little bit about the stimulus packages that have already passed, but uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on the $3 trillion trillion Heroes Act that just passed through the House. This contains $500 billion for state and local governments, Uh, hazard pay, more direct payments to people, election protections a whole lot more. The Senate has said, of course, that they won't consider it. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are generally on that package.
1: You
3: know, I will tell folks that, you know, when you're a policymaker and you pass a bill or any sort of legislation, whether it's in city government or state government or even the federal level, there are typically four responses to what you do, depending on who is making the assessment. People will be happy with what you did. They will be unhappy with what you did. They will think you went too far or they'll think you didn't go far enough. Mm -hmm. So depending on who you ask, we get a lot of different responses. But this is an emergency. And people need help. And so I think overall, there's a lot to like about what happened. There are some folks who voted against this and, you know, they have the reasons for doing it. But, you know, what we want to do is keep people on payrolls. We want to provide financial relief where people need it to meet basic needs. We, of course, want to always put public health front and center. And then, interestingly enough, they added something about defending elections here. And by the way, if you looked at me on social media and even in some of the conversations I've had, we need to have vote in. People should be able to. You
0: vote by anticipated me. my very next question. I was no, going to no. ask you how hard you feel, given the stakes, how hard you feel we should push for that.
3: Oh my God. So think about this. You know, I, I tell the story of my family. I was born in Korea. My father was an African American man in the U.S. Army, met my mother who's Korean. We came to the States in the 60s. And when we arrived in Virginia, that was our first stop. It was illegal for my parents to be married to each other. And that was really during the civil rights movement. And so I come from people who have been denied the right to vote. So I think for me, it is incredibly personal when I hear stories about voter suppression or, or things that are happening to keep people from the polls. We in Washington state have an amazing system. We know it works. And if we allow people in every state to have the option to vote by mail, it's just good for democracy. And I believe that there was an article in the Washington post that showed it doesn't favor one party over the other. It's just good for democracy. So I, I am a big fan of voting by mail, and I'm also a bigger fan of ensuring that we fully fund and defend our U.S. Postal Service because the two are connected.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned the fact that uh, there there were things to like about the Heroes Act, things uh, mm-hmm. to not like about it. Representative Jayapal voted no on the bill because, among other reasons, it didn't guarantee paychecks to workers. How would mm-hmm. you have voted on the bill if you were in Congress?
3: I would have voted for it. And it's just because people need relief now. And if we had held this up for a week or two or a month, there are people here at home who are hurting. And so, you know, I understand that progress takes time and you don't get everything that you want. But I would rather get 75 percent of something than 100 percent of nothing. And so I would have voted for it. You know, and there, and there's a lot that's good about it. I mean, you know, it gives Financial relief for vulnerable families. It, you know, it's it's more payments for folks. It's a moratorium on evictions. It helps deal with student debt. It, you know, and my big thing, like you know, public health is incredibly important. So there's a medical response coordinator. They have expanded paid family leave. There's funding for Medicaid programs, and that's incredibly important because we know that you know people who are losing their jobs, a lot of them unfortunately are losing their health care because too many. Healthcare care programs are tied to your employment. And yep. we know that necessarily should not be. And so, you know, that, that's another conversation. Well, but actually, think, it's you know, a conversation I would
0: love to have. And, and I'd okay. love to have it right now. In fact, uh, you see on your website that the COVID-19 global pandemic has thrown our nation into a public health crisis, unquote. Yeah. Uh, so presuming that you support it, and I, I, I trust that you do, how would you like to get to universal health care?
3: So, I would like to get to universal health care with an understanding that it's not going to happen overnight. And so, some of the ideas that I've talked with my staff about, and just I you know, and you know, what's, what's good about being on the campaign trail is that you hear what other candidates say, you get asked these good questions, and you start to think about how you'd shape policy. And I would say that. My approach is based on my experience with healthcare and my family's. So, you know, I come from a military family. So for a long time, we got medical care at Madigan Army Medical Center, which is basically socialized medicine. <laughs> you know, you go in there, you get treated, you get your prescriptions, you come out, and you'll get a summary of what it cost and what got covered, but the patient responsibility part is usually not that big. Understanding though that there's some procedures you're not going to get right away. The waits can be long depending on what the situation is. But overall all, you know, it's a program that works and people like it. I also have experience with my uncle who is a 78-year-old quadruple bypass patient, and he's on Medicare, but he purchases supplemental insurance from the private market because he doesn't get the coverage he needs. And so I would say that when I think about how we get to universal coverage, the desired outcome is what we focus on. How do we get everyone who's a resident of the U.S. covered with health care that is affordable, accessible, transparent, and this is important, and equitable, because we know that there are disparities in how people are treated and different outcomes for different people of different backgrounds and ethnicities. I would say one thing we could do that I think could get some traction would be to lower the eligibility age for Medicare. And so why not take it down to 55 or 50? You add more people to the Medicare program, and if someone wants to leave a job or do something, they have an option, and they're not necessarily tied to their employer to keep. Health care benefits. I'd say another thing we could do is with the Affordable Care Act, I believe now the age for children is to stay on their parents' plan until they're 26. Let's raise it to 30. I mean, we know that a lot of young people are losing their jobs right now or having a really hard time getting into the job market. So I think that would help. Well,
0: I'll give you I'll give you a hypothetical then. So if all of those uh, needs were met, say, if Medicare could obviate the need for supplemental insurance, if uh, Mm -hmm. age restrictions were lowered, would you support a universal Medicare for all type program?
3: I mean, I would say that I would support a program that would get us to universal coverage. And I think here's where there's a debate, because I think some people are saying that it has to be single payer, which means the government is the one entity that takes care of all the payments. There are some people who say it has to be a hybrid because you can't just eliminate the private market. And so I think for me, it's like I'd have to think about how we would get there. And I, but but there's an issue here that we haven't raised and that is the pharmaceutical part. When I talk to folks, especially our senior citizens, and you know, most of them have Medicare or some kind of coverage. And I say, what is your big healthcare issue? And they will say to me, it's the cost of pharmaceuticals and the uncertainty of getting what I need. And so they talk about the co-pays that are really high. They talk about the inconsistency of getting the type of medication they want. And this is where I think that if we allowed Medicaid to at least help negotiate some of those prices with the pharmaceutical companies, it's a way to drive down some of the costs. And also, too, just full transparency. You know, What does it cost to manufacture? What does it cost to take to the market? And why are we getting charged these different prices? And you've heard stories about how people will go to Canada or they'll order medication sure through mail order. And so there has to be some kind of discipline brought to the prices that pharmaceutical companies are charging people, because that's a really big, important issue, especially for our senior citizens.
0: I would just like to get you on the record because, you know, that indivisible groups in your district and nationally uh, are very much in favor of uh, Medicare for all, as written by uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. You do or do not support that?
3: I'm not going to say I support Medicare for all. I support universal coverage where everyone gets access.
0: You have worked hard for social and racial justice in your career, and under Trump and the GOP, we have seen a rise in systemic racism, lack of equity, outright violence, um, the death of George Floyd by police officers in Minneapolis just being the most recent example. What work would you do at the federal level to start undoing some of the damage that Trump has done?
3: Well, you know, one of the things that you see happening right now is that, you know, we know that we need criminal justice reform, and that is a very large, heady topic, I would say that we need criminal justice reform. We need to look at whether the federal government has a role to address some of these systemic racism issues. And when you think about systemic racism, it's not just about what's in someone's heart or soul or mind and how they treat someone. It's about consequences for bad behavior and also some of these systems we have in place that perpetuate it. You know, what is the lending institution like when people try to have an interaction with the bank? What is the housing situation like when people try to live in a neighborhood? And so I think that there are roles to play when it comes to that. And also too, you know, looking at how looking at how police shootings are investigated. Now we know that typically that is a local government role because the police department will work with the prosecutor's office, they'll bring in a third party. But I just think that when you look at the number of African American men, who are losing their lives or being harassed, there's something quite wrong. And I will tell you this I was on an interview yesterday and we talked about just some of this behavior that's happening. And, you know, it's being caught on camera is what's happening. And I really do believe that some of the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration is inflaming that. And I don't think that Donald Trump taking office has necessarily created people who are more hateful and racist. I think he's just given them license and permission to act that way. Now, with that said, when you think about racial justice, there has to be the space to have a conversation about people being afraid because bad behavior is typically based on fear. And think about what's happening right now with the Asian American Pacific Islander community and what's happening with them with COVID-19. You hear story after story about people being harassed at the grocery store, at the hardware store, people saying horrible things about people. And so Fear can bring out really bad behavior, and whenever something happens, there's a tendency for folks to want to have a scapegoat. And you know you saw it with an economy that was bad. When, you, when people said, "Oh, those people are taking all of our jobs," you know we heard it during the Japanese internment. You know a lot of West Coast cities ran Chinese Americans who built railroads out of their towns in the middle of the night. It happened here in Tacoma. And so whenever there's a crisis, there tends to be a scapegoat, and unfortunately that off, that scapegoat is often communities of color. And so you know I know that there was a resolution that was <clears throat> excuse me that was brought forward in the House about denouncing racism against API members of the API community during the time of COVID and I would definitely sponsor that, but you know, we can pass laws and we can do things, but we really have to help people understand that there's nothing to be afraid of, but fear is what drives bad behavior. Absolutely.
0: This is something that deserves its own show, of course, and, <laughs> uh, and really, and we could talk about this for, for a, a long time. I, I do want to get your thoughts on just a couple more things, and our time is short. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on the climate crisis. So okay. as mayor, you joined nearly 200 mayors across the country in signing Tacoma to the Paris Climate Accords after Trump pulled out. Uh, you yeah. worked to put the city on a path to lower emissions. But you also yep. supported the creation of a liquefied natural gas plant in the Port Tacoma. And you got a lot of pushback from people concerned about the impact on the climate. Do you still support that project?
3: I do. And here's why. So there is a shipping company based at the Port of Tacoma and they are under a federal mandate to burn cleaner fuel. So in order to do that, they do shore power when they pull up and they also retrofitted their ships to burn liquefied natural gas, which is cleaner, scientifically proven to be cleaner than bunker fuel it's good for the workers who work at the port and it's a federal mandate so by doing that they had to have someone build a liquefied natural gas storage facility and i think that's a distinction here it's not a plant it's a storage facility and so there was an rfp that went out they picked a local company and the, you know and the project got a lot of controversy but i think the desired outcome here was to help this local shipping company that provides jobs both at the shipping company and at the Port of Tacoma and keep workers safe and to obey a federal mandate. And scientifically, the liquefied natural gas is indeed cleaner than the bunker fuel that they were burning. And so that's why I support the project. I think one of the questions that really came up was you know, is it safe to site something like this at the Port of Tacoma? And if you think about the fact that over 25 regulatory agencies at the federal, state, and local level have to evaluate it for safety, I support the project. And I tell folks, too, I mean, even if you oppose the project, don't insult the professionals who specialize in safety and the environment and approval to do their jobs. If any of them said it was a bad idea, they would raise their hand and say it's a bad idea. And so, yes, I am on record to say I support the LNG storage facility to help one of our local shipping companies obey federal law and the mandate and provide a safer environment for people who work at the port
0: you're essentially addressing this but i do want to get your take philosophically on how you see the relationship between environmental impact and economic impact
3: I mean, I think that, you know, there there's often an either or proposition, right? It's like, well, you're either for the environment or you're for jobs. It's like it doesn't have to be a choice like that. And when we think about environmental impact and, you know, and economic impact, I would say that there are a few things we have to take into consideration, especially as we're talking about moving to a more carbon free future, you know. There are people who work in the carbon business, and as we transition, it has to be a transition that is just and fair to them, because you can't just take away people's livelihoods and say that, okay, we're going to be out of a job because we're eliminating this. Are we creating jobs that are going to allow them to make the same types of salaries and benefits so that they can care for their families and retire with dignity? I think that's incredibly important. I think the other thing that's important, too, is that we have to acknowledge the fact that we as consumers create demands for these products. And so- what options do we have as consumers to make better choices? We know that during this pandemic, when we were told to stay home, we drove a lot less and the air looks cleaner. It feels cleaner. So are we able to have mass transit and public transit options so that getting into the car isn't a necessity? For those of us who have the luxury of working from home, and everyone doesn't, I acknowledge that, You know, are there opportunities to work from home more often? Or even something as simple as some of these jobs that people commute to from Olympia or Tacoma or Puyallup up to Seattle, is there an opportunity to open an office closer to Pierce County so the commute isn't so long? And then I would also say, too, when it comes to power and energy, this is where there's an opportunity. You know, natural gas powers, heats, and cools a lot of homes, businesses, and large facilities. People cook with natural gas. They heat their homes with natural gas. They if they use air conditioning, they cool it. I mean, and that's everything from large events to large places where people gather to people's homes. And so if we're asking people to trans- transition away from that, you know, how do we build an infrastructure that allows them to? Well, but, I,
0: know- th- I think that's the fundamental question. And, and yeah. as a follow up to that, I would just ask you, you know, uh, the governor last year signed a law uh, moving the state to 100 percent clean energy by 2043. Mm-hmm. Is that liquid natural gas plant in compliance with
1: that?
3: Um you know I I haven't read the exact text of what he said. And I don't know if he says like, no, does that mean we eliminate all fossil fuels or we try to make reductions where we can? I mean, I don't, I don't have the answer to that. And I do know this transportation is the number one cause of carbon emissions. And so are we able to make some changes with carbon emissions first? And I know that there was a low carbon fuel standard that was passed at the state. So that's some progress, you know, but I talked to a friend of mine who runs a clean tech incubator in Seattle. And we talked about all these things that we're doing in the state, but here's the thing he pointed out to me. He said, this is a global problem in what is happening in China, what is happening in India and what choices are they they having to make with their economies about providing people's livelihoods, heating, running factories, doing work. And how is that going to affect the choices that they make? Because we can do all we want here in Washington state or in the U.S., but this is a global phenomenon. Well, understood.
0: Why- but I mean, in the role of a Congress, member of Congress, respectfully, those decisions impact the entire country.
3: Absolutely. No, no. And I'm not denying that. But I'm also saying too, like this has to be an international effort. That's the point I'm trying to make.
0: Understood. I I just want to get you on record, because once again, uh, as I'm sure you know, indivisible groups in your district have pushed very, very hard for support of the Green New Deal. Do you support that proposal as written?
3: I support the tenants and what the desired outcome is. And the desired outcome is to reduce carbon emissions and to do so in a way that is just and to think about how we leverage that to create a jobs program for lack of a better description. And so I'm not gonna say I'm on record saying I support the Green New Deal, but I support the ideals of what they want to accomplish. Let's reduce carbon emissions. Let's make better decisions as consumers. Let's do things that are making just transition. Let's make sure that communities of color are not disproportionately affected by number one, job loss, number two, by the impact of carbon emissions. And so I support the ideals, but I'm not going on record to say I support the Green New Deal.
0: Just one more thing that I want to ask you about, and that is uh, as about your work as the president and CEO of the Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. In 2018, as many people know, Amazon threatened to stop construction of its Seattle headquarters in protest against the city's head tax, which would have raised Mm -hmm. revenue to help address the homelessness crisis. As head of the Chamber of Commerce, I believe you opposed that head tax. Why?
3: We opposed the head tax because that was not the way to solve the problem. And. We believe, like a lot of people in Seattle and the region, is that this is a regional issue that requires a regional response. If you look at legislation that was introduced in Olympia during this last session, there was actually a tax proposal to raise revenue to create a regional response because homelessness is not just a seattle issue it affects the entire region and so king county had proposed something that allowed them to have taxing authority so that they create a regional response and i want to also point something out too i mean when you think about homelessness what was being proposed wasn't necessarily going to solve the issue on a scale that required mental health services permanent supportive housing and a whole host of other things and so the philosophy has been, let's have a regional response to this. Let's see where this goes and think about how we tackle it comprehensively. I'm, only- I'm
0: getting from you that because it didn't solve the problem in total, and because it was a municipal as opposed to a regional uh, approach, those are the reasons that, that you opposed it?
3: Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And and also too, you know, there was a, and and, and think about this too, the Seattle City Council repealed the head tax. So if something was passed And there was some polling that was done and they decided as a body to repeal the head tax.
0: Amazon's move could have cost thousands of jobs uh, in in the city and in the state. Do you feel they were justified in their response?
3: I feel as though I have no control over what a individual company decides, decides what they're going to do. And so that was the response that they decided to have. But I will tell you this. Amazon is a Seattle based company. They are growing. And they're going to be in the Pacific Northwest region for years to come. And so they chose to respond that way. That was not something that I had any control over. But I also will say too, that you know when there was the um, when the head tax was being discussed, I believe that there was a group of people who actually got petitions. and they collected about forty five thousand signatures, if I'm not right, about uh, if if I'm yeah, forty five thousand signatures which showed that people were opposed to the head tax. I also believe that there was a poll that was done that the chamber did not do that showed that the head tax was very, very unpopular. And so the Seattle city council made the decision to withdraw the head tax. And as we talk about, you know, what is possible when we think about how we address homelessness, it needs to be a regional issue. I mean, I just think that that's the best way to solve it. And there was an attempt in Olympia to make something happen, but I don't think it got anywhere this time around.
0: I will just ask you a fundamental question about Amazon, since it is the biggest employer in Seattle, I believe. Um, They paid no federal taxes in 2018 on $11 billion in profits. In fact, they received a refund. Uh, This falls under the purview of Congress. And I'm wondering, would you push for corporations like Amazon to pay federal taxes?
3: I would push for all entities to pay federal taxes. If my husband and I have to pay federal taxes, everyone else should too.
0: I will close by asking you about the historic nature of your run. You were the first Asian-American elected mayor of Tacoma. You were the first African-American woman as well. If you are elected to Congress, you would be the first Korean-American congresswoman in the United States. Can you talk about the importance of that to you?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important because... Government should reflect the community it serves. And right now, there is one other member of Congress who's Korean American. It's Andy Kim, and he's out of New Jersey. And if you think about the presence of the Korean American community, you know, we, we don't have representation in Congress. I think that's incredibly important. Now, I will tell you that, you know, I'm not running for Congress solely to be the Korean-American woman who's there. I'm running on a record of accomplishment. I'm running on what it is I want to do. But there is a historic nature about this, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, it's energized the not just the Korean-American community, but the Asian Pacific Islander community. There's a lot of support and enthusiasm about that. But also, too, just, you know, understanding that when we think about political power and influence, you need all voices at the table. And we don't have a woman of Korean American descent. And it would be my honor to be that voice and understanding, too, that, yes, it's about the 10th district, but I'm getting support from people throughout the state. You know, I've, I've been contacted by people who live in other parts of the country. And so I just think that, you know, sometimes when you have a chance to make history and to break barriers, it, is, it, it resonates a lot for people. It really does.
0: Absolutely.
3: Especially given the you know interesting history that the U.S. has had with the Korean Peninsula over time and, you know, what it means for a lot of people who are second generation and third generation Korean Americans. You know, representation does matter. But again, government is a better, more productive entity when it is more of a reflection of the entire community it serves.
0: I couldn't agree more. I, so I will just ask you in closing, where can people learn more about your campaign?
3: Absolutely. So our website is www.stricklandforwashington.com, and it's all spelled out. So spell out my last name, spell out the word for, F-O-R, Washington.com. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter, we are on Instagram. And, you know, as we said earlier at the top of this interview, we are doing a lot of stuff on social media and electronic media just because we know that that's the way we have to campaign during the age of COVID. Because, you know, public safety is always going to be our first responsibility, but we still have to get out and meet voters and talk to them and answer questions. And, you know, we do a weekly Facebook live event covering different topics from the five point plan. And tonight we're going to cover follow the science. So. Hopefully, you know, people will join us, check us out, ask questions.
0: And I will just billboard that this podcast, in conjunction with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, is going to be hosting a town hall upcoming very shortly with you, as well as other Democratic candidates who are running for Congress in the 10th CD. So stay tuned for that. All right. Yeah. Well, Mayor Marilyn Strickland, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was nice to be here.
0: And that'll do it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thank you again to my guests, Fox Hampton, John Miller, and Mayor Marilyn Strickland. Special thanks to Chris Franco. Extra special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to everyone for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.